I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest today is Randall Poster. If you don't know the name, I guarantee you'll know his work. Randall is a music supervisor, creating soundtracks and overseeing the scores of some truly iconic films. Among his many credits is a 20-year collaboration with director Wes Anderson, crafting the musical profile of all his films dating back to 1996's Bottle Rocket. It's been a continually evolving process, from Rushmore's Sound of the British Invasion to the Portuguese covers of David Bowie and Life Aquatic, from the music and the films of Satchit Rai for the Darjeeling Limited and the Eastern European folk music of the Grand Budapest Hotel. There's always been a new stone to turn behind one of the most fruitful collaborations in cinema. In addition to his work with Wes, Randall has had long-standing collaborations with great directors such as Richard Linklater, Todd Haynes, Martin Scorsese, Sam Mendes, and Harmony Korine. And behind all of his work, it's clear to see a genuine love of music and film that's persisted through a long career. I photographed Randall at his office in New York, and you can see the portrait at our website, williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. Here I am with Randall Poster. I did that, and then I've done, you know, I've done a bunch of, like, I did a Fresh Air interview. You did did Fresh Air? Yeah, I did Fresh Air. With Terry? That's cool. What was that experience like? Um, It was good. You know, it was funny is that you really have to be on your, you know, people say, like, be on your toes because she'll come at you with something that you won't, you don't expect. <laughs> and so I was really on my toes with her about it. What and could I mean, she come at well, you Well, I know. I don't know. Just, you know, you want to be, you want to sound fluid and you want right. to sound, you want to sound halfway intelligent. Mm-hmm. And so it was all fine. And uh, I guess it was either around Budapest Hotel or it was around Darjeeling Limited. And then she said, oh, um... I heard that you lost your record collection in a in a flood, and so when we moved when we we moved to Riverdale, mm-hmm. I'd never lived in a house ever, yeah. right? And so I had the my record collection, which I had taken to college, which I had taken to San Francisco, which I brought back, which was just it wasn't really like it wasn't any kind of collectible record collection. It was mm-hmm. just my record collection. It was the archive. It's important. So, yeah. So and then we I, when we moved, we put the records in. The garage mm-hmm. and garages flood and so I lost my record collection it's terrible and uh, and it was like sort of like and when it happened it was sort of like well I'm not really gonna let it weigh on me too heavily because most for the most part I you know CDs and whatever mm-hmm. it was was there a perverse catharsis in the whole no, thing no it was it was not I mean I had really played those records you uh-huh. know and and so I, she was like I, and I guess in some other interview or somewhere else I had mentioned it to somebody so she was like, oh, um, and, I, and I basically said, oh, you know, what I just told you. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, and, and I go, but, you know, you know, I pieced it back together. You know, I pretty much was able to get everything that I had had that I wanted. Well, is there anything that you didn't get? I was like, well, I'm still, I'm still looking for that Neil Young on the beach with the floral print inner sleeve. And it was great. And I got, after I did the interview, I got like 10 of them. Like people sent like people them, sent them, people them to people you. People sent them to me. That's see, that's the power of Terry. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. That's very cool. Doing this, like you realize how talented a lot of these people are. Yeah. In how they bring people through a conversation, yeah. and, and uh, I mean, she's the you know she's the. King. I did Leonard Lopate too, uh-huh. um, and he was good. He 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 definitely tries to he, he tries to catch you or like he's 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 like playing tennis with somebody. He really. He really enjoys pushing you. I <laughs> mean, um, that was one where I did it about, it was about the Civil War record. Yeah. Where as much as I sort of became expert mm-hmm. in that world and sort of the, the story of how that music evolved, 
I mean, I'm not, I, I wasn't, I'm not a scholar of yeah, it, you sure. know, so yeah. I, I sort of danced as fast as I could with him on that one. He's like, he's like throwing facts yeah, at you and stuff? Yeah, like he, yeah, whatever researchers like uh-huh. put, put to him and, and, and kind of express, expecting that you would have like total recall of right. everything that, right. you know, transpired. Well, maybe let's start with the Civil War, the Civil War record. Um, well, I mean, with the Civil War record, so I love country music, mm-hmm. right? And and New York, born and bred person, it surprises people sometimes mm-hmm. that I really love country music. And people always say like, well, you know, oh, you mean like old-fashioned good country music like Johnny Cash? And it's like, yeah, I love that, but I really kind of love all of it, yeah. the whole world of it. And so when people would ask me, you know, what, 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 what kind of movie are you looking to do? For years, I used to say, I want to do a country music movie. Mm-hmm. And so I had the opportunity to do a film called Country Strong. Mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. And it was down in Nashville because all the characters are performers in the movie, right? So that really demand that those are the times when I'm on set. I'm on set when music plays on camera. Mm-hmm. That's when I need to be on set. And so this was really by virtue of the fact that there was so much on camera performance, that was a movie probably I spent as much time on set as I've spent on any movie, right? Mm-hmm. And I loved it, and I really loved living in that community, and kind of had the uh, the opportunity to really sort of settle into it. And so after we finished, I was thinking, well, I, I mean, I can't imagine I'm going to get another country music movie in the next short time period of time. How many are really made, right? And so um, I came down from breakfast one day, and and I saw in the in the in the local paper they were saying, oh, it's soon to be the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, and I thought. I can make a record, the music of the Civil War, and I have five years to do it because mm-hmm. the war went on for five years. And so, and, and this way I will be able to get, engage this community of country, country musicians and bluegrass artists and traditionalists. And so I was lucky enough, a guy named Corn Capshaw, um, who's a big music manager and empresario, he said, he, he, he got it and he was like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll underwrite it. And so... In about a year, I made this this record, which was 36 songs, music from the Civil War, and just sort of went deep into it. What was great about it, and what it was, why it was really, in a sense, revitalizing, is because you know generally what I do is the music that I that I make or that I help find or I work with a director to put together. You have to sort of make it work within the context of a 90 second scene, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. I had none of those obligations, right? I didn't have anybody else that I had to sort of please but myself. And so, th- you know, that that having, uh, on occasion, getting to do that is a, is um, a sort of a nice intermezzo. Mm-hmm. Well, you do a lot of these kind of tribute albums in a, in a sense. Yeah. I've done a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. I've done a bunch of them. I mean, actually, right at this moment for the year 1919, I'm going to make a record of Hanukkah songs, oh, which cool. I'm excited about. Very cool. So in a sort of 12-month span, I go from doing the soundtrack to Superfly mm-hmm. to making a Hanukkah record, which, mm-hmm. you know, it amuses me, if not anybody else. Were you always, like, encyclopedic in your interests like well, that? Well, I, I, I always, you know, I always, when I found something I liked, I always would try to dig deeper into it yeah. and find all of the connections mm-hmm. and sort of where the music came from and you know, who was connected to it and just following all those family branches. And that's, and, and, and really it's been my sort of abiding passion and really as much as, and as long as I've been digging it, 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 I never hit rock bottom. There's Mm -hmm. always another place to go. So, 
Um, it's it's been it's it's a great adventure that just sort of still continues. What was your home base like? What, what did you start with in terms of? Um, you know, I you know I guess popular music really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know the first forty five I bought was mm-hmm. a was a, a record by this group called the Guess Who. Um, a song called "Laughing" by the Guess Who was the first single I ever bought. Then maybe soon after it was like "What's Going On," mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye. And then I think I picked up, as far as long players went, I picked up like the Beatles' second album mm-hmm. and then um, uh, Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story. That was sort of the first cool. record. So it was, it was basically like, you know, AM radio, then to sort of FM radio. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, growing up here in New York, it was, it was a golden era of rock and roll, really. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a lot to... A, a lot to respond to and a lot to invest in emotionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, the music, you know, music like you know Neil Young's records, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. As a as a as an adolescent or as a preteen, it really sort of helped kind of establish sort of the depth of what looked like adult emotionality. Yeah. You know, and um, and and really musically, I, I would say that the the my 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 variations or or the or the the variety of my appetites are, you know sort of a born out of period in the sense that you know when i was in 11th grade kind of there was a disco explosion you know mm-hmm. and so in 1977 punk rock was also happening so in a weekend in high school you could go from the studio 54 to the mud club mm-hmm. you know and cbgb's and it was all there and so you know, and I liked all of it. I really, I wasn't, I didn't find myself in opposition to really any of it. Well, I th- see, I think that's kind of unique because I think everyone has this idea that they, that they're guarding their, their taste mm-hmm. in music, you right. know, and it's, it's always, uh, like this, not that, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're punk, you're not into disco. Right. And, uh, and it's interesting to me that you've you've always seemed to be like really. I mean, in a way, it's kind of what you get to do thinking about music the way you do. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, I think that that, that all, you know, there are people they talk about people, you know, people in the music business that, you know, um, some legendary executive he had an ear for it, like he could always hear the thing that was the next going to be the next thing, or was the or was the band or artist that was going to rise above the rest Mm -hmm. and then there's some people who they have a nose for it like they can just sort of like they can sense it they may not necessarily really get the music Mm -hmm. but they kind of see it and sense like okay this is star quality or this is capturing the moment and and i would say that thankfully i still respond to the music it's Mm -hmm. not about like oh i understand why that's popular Mm -hmm. or i understand why that's people think that's good it's like i kind of feel like okay i, I, I it, it's good to me it's, it's like, like an it feels, emotional thing yeah it yeah, feels sure. good to me so i mean i'm thankful that i still kind of respond to music in the same way that i did when i was 15 years old mm-hmm. were you into the like the live scene in new york when you yeah, were a kid I, I, you know i was into it as it you know it's funny is that you know, the drinking age in New York when I was growing up was 18. So Big difference, yeah. Yeah, so basically you could kind of get away with making your way into into clubs and mm-hmm. nightclubs. And so I would say probably, you know, in those years I went to as many shows as I ever did, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, less oriented towards live music in the last 20 years, right. really. You're growing up in New York uh, and music's one side of things mm-hmm. and 
film and movies are probably the other side, right? Yeah. What were your what was your first loves there? Well, I mean, we used to go to the movies. We used to go to the movie. We'd go see me and my 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 uh, gang. Mm-hmm. We'd go see five movies in a weekend. Mm. You know, it was a it was sort of the golden era of American cinema. But also, you know, if as a New Yorker, you know, like at a certain point, there were so many movie theaters. You right. know, you would go, and there was the Cinema One, the Cinema Two, the Baronet, the Coronet. There were, you know, there were there was the Beekman. There were there were so many movie theaters that you could really run from one right to the next. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there was that element of it. I mean, that's what we would do when we would go out. And then otherwise, it was like you'd get home from school, and there'd be, you know, there were. There were uh, six television stations, right? So mm-hmm. you would watch the 4.30 movie. And so that was sort of film school in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there were the movies that were recurrent on the 4.30 movie or the late show actually before TV went off. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of, it, it kind of became part of the fabric of every day of watching movies. Isn't it funny to think about like the like the TV going off? Yeah, the TV used to go off. <laughs> the TV point. used to go off. And again, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not going to make any qualitative judgments about mm-hmm. living now, being a teenager now versus about a teenager then. Sure. But sometimes it's almost like there's so many choices that you kind of don't necessarily have the patience to sit through something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is boring. I'm going to just change. And you didn't have as many options, so you kind of settled into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You tried some things you otherwise wouldn't yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and you got a little bit of a film education, you know, whether it was the movies from the 40s or the 50s that really were the things that were playing, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 and the titles, you know, whether it's Bye Bye Birdie or Casablanca or play Misty for me or mm-hmm. all the things that you saw that, you know, you saw by, you didn't know what was coming on really. It was just what was on in between school and dinner. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because when you were talking about Country Strong earlier, mm-hmm. the one thing that pops into, mind, into my mind was like Nashville. Right. Are you a big Nashville fan? Right. Yeah. I mean, I saw Nashville in the theater when it first came out. I mean, yeah. Nashville, again, that was sort of, the, in my lifeline, that the impact that that made on me was more about having a window into sort of adult neurosis and mm-hmm. sexuality that mm-hmm. was, you know, it was, it was enchanting. You know, that was, I, I mean, I think that was my, that was my, my impression, I think from Nashville, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there was the Keith Carradine song and then there was this sort of strange adult world that I guess at a certain point we were aching to get into. Yeah, being a kid in New York, when yeah. you, you see it all around yeah. you, but you're not I mean, quite in it. I mean, yeah. it reminds me of the first time. So we got we went to Studio 54 when we were 16, right? And I remember going in there that night, and it was like all of like these half naked women dancing, and people in these in these low couches, mm. and all these kind of just really interesting looking, this interesting looking society. And I remember just saying to myself, "I want to be a grown up." <laughs> <laughs> And I think that like some of those movies were the things that sort of prompted me. You know, you know it's funny. I feel like I have a similar experience to a certain extent where it's like uh, a big part of my like ch- not childhood, but, you know, teenage years in New York was the same thing, like trying to like trying to sneak into the clubs that you didn't that you weren't allowed to be in, mm-hmm. you know, or or uh, and a big part of that was music. You know, it was always like justified, like, oh, we want to see we want to see this person play. We want to see that person play. Yeah. But there's definitely that experience where you're kind of like, 
I'm here, but you're kind of always on your toes because yeah. you're not supposed to yeah. be there. Yeah. Or you just don't, you, you just don't, you know, you just don't know if anybody, you know, if you're going to get, you know, if somebody's going to demand to see your papers, you yeah. know, <laughs> so going to stop you on the street. Yeah. What about, what about heading to, heading to Brown at the time? Did you have a sense that you were on this path or not really? No. I mean, you know, I got the call. All I really want to do the other, the other sort of thing that I that that was my preoccupation was like I just always loved reading Mm -hmm. and reading reading fiction and so I went to college really just intent on reading all the great books or as many of them as I could I could I could get through and for whatever reasons I I I wasn't really oriented towards like life after college I did I Mm -hmm. didn't for however it happened I really didn't think about it very much um, I just kind of, I guess I kind of had faith that everything would sort of make itself clear at the right time, mm-hmm. really. And still, even at Brown, uh, you know, super obsessed with music. And again, another great era. I mean, the, the records, the, the two most important records that I took with me to college were Remain in Light by the Talking Heads mm-hmm. and uh, Just Can't Stop the English Beat. Mm-hmm. And And then it was sort of, you know... The glo- a glory a, a glory period of Elvis Costello and all the music that was happening in in the UK and going to the movies there was you know there was the the the, the movie theaters of Providence that were either repertory or showing foreign films and there was film society in Brown, at Brown so it was kind of just you know and and I guess finding some confederacy some more community of people who were sort of oriented in that you know, oriented towards those things. So Todd Haynes was in my class at Brown. Is that how you, you guys first met at Brown? Yeah. And Christine yeah. Vashon, who I, you know, both of them, I work with them still to this day. Mm-hmm. We were classmates. I was thinking today, I saw Christine, that we were in a class, French film of the 1930s. But it wasn't so much, it wasn't like professional. It wasn't, it wasn't like a pre-professional program mm-hmm. as far as like movies or, or music. It just was sort of what we were all obsessed with. Yeah. I wanted to ask about this Todd Haynes movie, uh, Velvet Goldmine, right? Which is like, which is all about kind of like glam punk, glam right. rock, and right. I mean, how was it working on that movie? Well, so that movie, I mean, it was great to work on that movie, mm-hmm. and and Todd is, you know, Todd is really a visionary, and Todd really is one of the most specific filmmakers that that I work with, um, and and really, it's interesting is that there are prod there's there's scripts generally you sort of get involved or start to really get more deeply involved in a project when there's a script to sort of be the point of departure point of discussion and and people talk about how oh that script was a great read or i loved it and todd's scripts are not the easiest to read they're Mm -hmm. almost like i i i liken them to like architectural blueprints you know if you look at it and you kind of like sometimes with todd generally in the last in some of these movies where I said, you need to walk me through some of this because yeah. I don't, what's happening. I'm not really yeah, yeah, yeah. sure about what's going on. And so he, he made this incredible ode to, to glam rock and the world of sort of this world of David Bowie. And the, and the great story with that is that, you know, David Bowie sort of, as we were closing in on production, told us that he wouldn't let us, that he didn't want us to use any of his music in the film. Mm-hmm. And Todd was really set back and really rattled by it. And for whatever reason, I thought it was like, I, I saw it as a great opportunity to try to see if we could bring a more 
unique and original musical element mm-hmm. to the project. And this way, the story became less of a sort of David Bowie pastiche and sort of more of an original story. Yeah. Obviously, everything that we did was somehow rooted in that in, in that legacy, but, that but, but it wasn't it. Yeah. just sort of a variation of David Bowie it, mm-hmm. it was, and, and, or a variation on the music of David Bowie. Um, and th- we met these guys, Nathan Larson and Craig Wedren, who had a, were in a group called Shudder to Think, and they almost immediately turned around these two songs that just gave us the confidence that we were going to be fine mm-hmm. and, and, and had a great time with that and that we did merge some of the people from the era. We worked with Andy Mackay, who'd been in Roxy Music, and we did original uh, recordings with um, a, sort of a super group or a couple of super groups that we put together. I think we made something that just felt, you know, it's funny when you do period pieces is that it's important that not only you render the, the period with a certain amount of correctness, but also in these revolutionary moments, what was impactful in that moment was the novelty, mm-hmm. right? And so here are these songs that you 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 know that you've heard for forty years. So how do you how do you make them? How do you give the audience the feeling of discovery, right? With something that they they have familiarity with. How do you go about doing that? Well, do you I mean, sense? yeah, I mean, I think you try to do it with you know sort of, well, at least with Velvet Goldmine, with bringing some new songs into it, mm-hmm. right? And then I think in other scenarios, it's like, well, how do you adapt the sound to uh, make that impression? You know, so I mean, I think about another Todd Haynes movie, I'm Not There, where we where we're using you know. But Bob Dylan's catalog as the basis of the storytelling was the story of Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. And so with some of that, we p- tried to bring some pure electricity, liter- literally pure electricity to the sound of some of the recordings. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny. Like, I'm not there. I can't imagine reading that script. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, yeah, it was. I, I didn't know. I didn't know which end was up. I had to. He had to. He had to hold my hand. It and, must be a and, totally and crazy script. It. it was like looking at a le- like. Yeah, have you ever seen like the blueprint, the like electrical blueprints or something? You <laughs> yeah, know? sure. Like those those yeah. crazy charts. I, yeah, where well, you don't know yeah. what the signs or symbols mean. You don't know what you know. So that was that. That's the process of that. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm not there. Yeah, it might. I mean, I think it's it's like you know, really revolutionary movie in terms of like, how do you go about doing like a, like a biopic or like right. telling someone's story in a, and when it's someone that you really can't even begin to approach, you know, mm-hmm. like someone who's always reinvented or somebody who was always looking to obscure yeah. himself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what the story is really is mm-hmm. that here is this character who, and this, this, you know, this legendary artist who has done nothing but subvert your sense of impression. Mm-hmm. Were you on set for all these kind of... I was. I was on set for, for, for a lot of that, yeah. What was this, What was the kind of vibe of that? Like, well, I mean, did people to, understand what they were making? I don't know that people did. I mean, yeah. because people, everybody, people were all in different sections of the movie, yeah. right? So they didn't it's necessarily parceled, know... right? Yeah, they didn't yeah. necessarily know what came before and after, except mm-hmm. they knew that, well, wait a second, this is set in the... In the in the nineteenth, the West, the, the you know, yeah, all of a sudden we're in the eighteenth century, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Rambo is is yeah, yeah, yeah. is 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 narrating this movie. So, or, or also people just couldn't get over the fact like Kate Blanchett is mm-hmm. playing Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. amazing uh, performance. Yeah, yeah. What's it like recording like a live 
like trying to trying to capture the energy of like a live performance on well, I mean, I think with, with that, it's just sort of like trying to find the right collaborators, right, who both have an insight and, and a capacity to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like some people can get the idea, but then don't know how to succeed successfully mm-hmm. perform. Right. So I always look to find people who are sort of the expert collaborators, the genius collaborators. And so Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth was mm-hmm. really the anchor of a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and and we we worked with him to sort of try to capture capture the sound as we imagined it might be. Mm-hmm. So when you when you got out of college, mm-hmm. what was the first move? How did you get involved? Well, so you know, I had taken a semester away from school, right? Mm-hmm. So I graduated in the mid year, right after I was meant to graduate, and it dawned on me that I you know, as I said, I was sort of blind to the fact that I needed to try to do something, and it dawned on it dawned on me rather suddenly and I realized well if I you know I better do something or else I'm going to end up in law school which was almost like a I don't know I saw it in a way as like a uh, a death sentence that was your gulag yeah and um and so was that your parents putting you under that pressure well I just seemed like I mean that was sort of in those days and I don't know if it's still the case it was sort of like one of those things well that's what you sort of do when you don't really know and you want to kind of keep some momentum going, mm-hmm. right? Keep some options. Yeah. 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 So I realized that that was hovering potentially. And so um, at Brown, while I was at Brown, the college radio station, WBRU, had gone from being a freeform college uh, student program station to like an actual commercial radio station. Right. And so a friend and I had this idea that we would write a story sort of set in that world. Mm-hmm. And so we, we took a road trip out to San Francisco and wrote this script. And basically, it was sort of about, I guess, characters who were in the situation that I was in. It was kind of about, I mean, I'm the last of the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of about how kind of the, what we had seen as the sort of spirit and potential of the student movement and the liberal movement of the 60s kind of becoming out of out of grasp or mm-hmm. whatever we lost kind of law i mean Ronald, Ronald, Ronald Reagan was elected president when we were in <laughs> yeah. my freshman year in college so you're a little down on it and just sort of just sort of like unclear about really what it all meant mm-hmm. seemingly growing up it seemed like it was it was irrefutable and it was firmly rooted mm-hmm. in the culture which we've seen i mean now i mean we won't get into it but where we are now no, it's sort yeah. of so we wrote this script and then Somehow we got it to a few people and they were interested in buying it. And then we, my friends, we just sort of like, well, let's, let's like try to make it. Mm-hmm. Let's try to make this movie. Was that a crazy decision at the time? I kind of, and, but it was sort of at the moment where like there, it was sort of at the moment where the American independent cinema was sort of emerging where mm-hmm. people were making movies independently. Cause you say to people, we're, we're going to try to make this movie. And they were like, what do you mean you're trying to make this? People don't yeah. make movies. And so we had a break where we were accepted into the lab at Sundance mm-hmm. and we continued to work on the script and we sort of learned about like putting together uh, uh, you know the fundraising mechanism so we would be able to get put the money together to make the movie and we made the movie mm-hmm. and it was called A Matter of Degrees and it was directed by a guy named W.T. Morgan who had directed a, mo- a documentary called The Unheard Music about the LA punk band X which mm-hmm. we loved and we loved the band and we loved the movie and um, we premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, played in Berlin, and 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 because it was sort of a story about people who were involved in the college radio, 
we recorded a lot of songs with all these emerging bands. It was sort of at a moment where what they had been calling college radio became alternative music. Right, yeah. And we- it's the um, birth of indie rock. And we, and we made a soundtrack that Atlantic Records put out. And over the course of doing that, what, I, what, I, what became clear to me is that like, what I really wanted to do is what I wanted, I wanted to work with great film directors. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if I, and I put the music together and I enjoyed doing that and putting it in the movie and, and working with the director to, to sort of make it mo- as impactful as possible, that if I made that my focus, that that would be the way that I would be able to work with great film directors. And then it just kind of worked out that way. Mm-hmm. What was the next project you took on? Um, I think people saw the movie and really liked the music. The movie itself had very little impact. Um, Do you like the movie? I, you know what? I have not watched the movie in the longest uh, time. But yeah. I, I liked yeah. it. I mean, part of it, I mean, we worked really hard on it. We had any problem that you could have making a movie, we had it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so people then sort of hired me to sort of help them with the music and the movies. Nothing, nothing really no, notable. And then, then I then I got asked to work on kids, mm-hmm. and that was sort of when things started to sort of move a little bit faster. It's interesting because now kids is sort of this like cult iconic mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. but at the time, I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, Harmony Crin was this figure, you know. Well, you know, the movie people, people somehow people and Larry forget. Clark. Some people do. They think Harmony wrote, directed the movie. Well, it's, it is a misconception. Yeah, yeah no, it's Larry, Larry Clark, right? Larry Clark directed the movie. I somebody gave me the script, and the script said that this, the title page of Kids said "Kids" by the world famous writer Harmony Korine. <laughs> and I just read that. I just was like, I need to meet this person. Yeah. Um, and 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 but Larry was the director. And, you know, again, that was something, what was interesting about that was that, you know, the music in the film is, is, is kind of eclectic at points, but the score was done by a guy named Lou Barlow, and who had been in a band called Sebado, and out of doing Kids, which they, they, they called the, the he, he made the music for the film with a guy named John Davis, and they called themselves Folk Implosion. Mm-hmm. And we turned one of the score pieces into a song called Natural One, and it became a top 40 hit. Mm-hmm. And that was just like, that was completely unexpected. Yeah. And that was really, that was really fun when that happened. So after kids, I mean, when did you, when did you start working with like, for instance, Wes Anderson? Well, I, you know, there, there, there were a bunch of movies that sort of, I, I'd start to work pretty regularly at that point. Mm-hmm. Was that weird? Did you feel like you knew what you were doing? Or? Well, more and more, but it's all, it's, you know, every movie is different yeah. and every, and working with every director is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly had, you know, firmer footing in the process. I was introduced to Wes as he was finishing Bottle Rocket. We sort of connected right away about movies and music and and so then he asked me to help him put together the soundtrack for Bottle Rocket and then once we were working on that we just started to talk about the music for Rushmore mm-hmm. and we've been sort of going ever since really um, and so what was it that you guys connected on? I well mean, I mean I think we were both kind of you know I think we were both kind of movie nerds really yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just loved Bottle Rocket yeah I, I mean love I, loved, so much. I loved it yeah and again, I mean, I think that the filmmakers that I think are the most sort of fun to work with are, they're countercultural in, mm. in, in their point of view, you know? And I think that that was a real attraction to mm-hmm. sort of the, the point of view. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and there was just, there was a certain 
rare. There was certain unique. There was so much that was unique about the voice that I just wanted to stay close to the storyteller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's funny because we talked about this a bit with with I'm not there. Mm-hmm. But another thing that that it occurs to me is like when you're doing when you're doing Rushmore, mm-hmm. right? Or even even kind of the wake of Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine people working with Wes, even at the time, were 100% aware of, like, what was happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think those of us who were, who were close to the process knew that something, something special was happening just because he's, you know, Wes, like Todd, like Scorsese, uh-huh. like Sam Mendes, like Richard Linkletter, like Harmony, they're very specific. Mm-hmm. And... I think when you're on, you know, when you're in in the filmmaking mode, you know, directors they they when you when you're when it's clear to you that they have it in their head, mm-hmm. it's definitely invigorating to yeah. the process, and you kind of understand like you're it's like somebody who is really doing something with a vision. You trust it. Yeah, I mean, again, that the word really in terms of to me the greatest compliment you can pay to a director I think is to say that he has a vision you know Mm -hmm. that he's visionary because you know oftentimes there are people that you work with where it sort of becomes clear as you're in the process that they don't really they don't really see it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's not only that they don't see it in terms of like sometimes you sometimes you're in a you know you're you're in a situation where you're not exactly sure if you're getting what you think you're getting you're not sure what what you're getting Mm -hmm. but at least in your mind you have something that you're moving towards Mm -hmm. you know or the ability to adapt what you get into what you want yeah well it's it's, i just i think of this this you know setting of like you know you're because the interesting thing about wes anderson to me is just regardless of whether you're a fan or not i certainly am Mm -hmm. there's absolutely no one who does anything like him and Mm -hmm. it's completely unmistakable Mm -hmm. you know you could know nothing about wes anderson and see one of his movies right and leave and just know that it was right you you see the frame and you know that it's him exactly and and i i imagine that doing those early films right like producing them must have been such a trip because you're just like wow like i've never i've never seen a frame like that before mm-hmm. we've never well done i mean there, i mean there are things like where there are things where you know wes is just you know he's not as caught up in certain aspects of it of the filmmaking process that other directors are you know he 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 certainly keeps wanting to work with a, a smaller and smaller crew mm-hmm. he, he's he, he, he's 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 quick to surrender all the trappings of Hollywood and mm-hmm. celebrity driven process and and just wants to get down to the work mm-hmm. you know and what I what impressed me so much at, you know about Wes was sort of the the, the depth of the frame just like the, if you in, in you know the things that are happening in the in the in the in deep background you know yeah and everything's thought about yeah. you know I mean, that's why yeah. I mean that's why I mean you know, animated movies are are, are are both you know they perfectly suited to him, but also you know, I mean, he can. It also could be maddening because he actually can control yeah. every and every, go back and do centi- it again, again, every centimeter of the frame. Well, I mean, I can't like Fantastic Mr. Fox and and recently, you know, I I love dogs. Like right. the way that those are animated is totally crazy. Yeah, yeah, with like real real fur and yeah. I mean, you you know, it's funny is that the with Mr. Fox and and I love dogs. Both the same um, style of animation, but look completely different. Mm-hmm. 
how did you come to this song? I, I, I've lost all my pride. I don't know if that's the name uh, oh, of it. Oh, uh, uh, I, I won't hurt you. I won't hurt you. Yeah. I won't hurt you. Again, these are things, I mean, we pick up along the way, but only Wes would have the confidence mm-hmm. to just sort of use it in the way that it's being used. It seems so It seems so counterintuitive in its way, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just mm-hmm. sort of, he just has an instinct and he just can make it, he makes it work, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that's, that, that, I mean, that's sort of such an obscure um, and unique and emotional piece of music and so it's it's really i mean again it's his it's his it's the integrity of what he does that sort of makes things work that just don't aren't just sort of a simplistic recipe for cinematic success and i don't mean success in any commercial way i just mean in terms of imparting emotion in a in a scene or a sequence did you have a favorite pro- project he worked on together? You know, I, I mean, I have, a, I, I, have, I have a sentimental attachment to certain things. I mean, uh-huh. I can't say that I have a favorite, uh, you know, is that, you know, I have, a, I have a certain attachment, I think, to Life Aquatic. Yeah. Um, I can probably watch Grand Budapest Hotel over and over and over again. It's always something new with that one. Um, what, what about what about singing singing? I mean, you came back to David Bowie, right? So that's David so, Bowie in right. Portuguese. So David Bowie. So David Bowie, who respectfully wouldn't let us use his music in Velvet Goldmine. Yeah. I, I definitely did have the card to play when it came to trying to use the David Bowie in in, in do me life, a solid here, man. Aquatic. Yeah, <laughs> they, and they did do as a solid. I mean, some of that was just sort of to try to do it where it would be feasible, economically feasible, but mm-hmm. also the, you know to get to where David Bowie would say, okay, you're going to have this running motif of my songs being done by this, you know. Uh, Portuguese, um, this Brazilian singer in sort of a bossa nova style. And he mm-hmm. just sort of, he went with it. Again, part of it was like he was able to, where I think part of the issue with Velvet Goldmine was like, that was sort of, in a way, it was a story that resembled his own story. Right, in a certain right, sense. right. Or was a, it was a, it was a sort of a, a, an inversion of it or a Todd Haynes personalization of it, mm-hmm. where this had nothing to do with him, really. Mm-hmm. It was just the, the life of his song. And he loved it. I mean, we, you know, David Bowie loved the bossa nova that we did with his. With that his, actor is amazing. Song. Yeah, so, I mean, that was Sal George. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Wes was living in New York when he was writing Life Aquatic, and we used to go meet um, on Sundays, and he would show me the new pages. And one afternoon, there was a line in the script that said, "Pele comes on deck and sings a David Bowie song in Portuguese," mm-hmm. and that was it. That was the only thing that was ever written. Yeah. Um, and then we found George. And he was so incredible in his mm-hmm. capacity that, you know, we were like, okay, let's do 13 David Bowie songs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and basically the way that went is I, you know, I spent time with, with, with George record, we, we recorded the music because he had to learn how to, he had to write the, the, the tra- do the translations, both mm-hmm. the literal translation and the spiritual translation. Cause he was not grounded and it wasn't like he was the greatest he didn't know all of david bowie yeah and 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 then you know once he got it down we were you know we did it in 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 good time so wes was confident that basically you know they'd be at the end of any shooting they'd say okay let's get george you know let's get george to do another one mm-hmm. and that's how it came together i mean that's 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 crazy i mean space oddity by george is yeah. a, is such a killer cover yeah and it totally changes that entire song yeah yeah, but Lady Stardust, I think, is the one that sends me. What about, um, like, I think about a movie, for instance, like Darjeeling Limited, right. where you're really digging into 
like a real niche, you know, and right. something that I like, were you familiar with, uh, with not really very much. I mean, it's sort of, so, you know, Wes was working on the script and, and he had this notion or this idea that he wanted to use the music of only use the music that was the music from the films of Sachet Ray mm-hmm. or the film music from Merchant Ivory, some of which was composed by Sachet Ray. Right. Yeah. So, and he was just committed to it. That mm-hmm. was his, like, okay, this is going to, this is the rule that we're, this is what we're going to try to abide by this notion. And, uh, you know, we, we were able to get, we had some of it in hand, but then I had to go to Calcutta mm-hmm. and sort of get it because, you know, we, it wasn't like you could go to, go to Tower Records and get all of, the, all of it. And, th- and that's generally our modus, our modus operandi is that we identify an idea or we have an idea. And then I go and gather all of it. <laughs> so I was in Calcutta sort of collecting these tapes from the Sachet Ray estate. And, and again, it's sort of, you know, I, I think I was saying before, you know, you, you have a certain blind faith that your instinct is going to satisfy you, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the larger sense of like providing you with the, the means to make the movie the way you want to make it. I almost think the hardest part with doing that sort of thing is like trying to find context for the music, mm-hmm. right? Or trying to like understand who the players are. If mm-hmm. you're if you're diving into, you know, maybe it's maybe it's like like glam punk, mm-hmm. maybe it's maybe it's uh, music from India, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's Civil War music. But mm-hmm. it's like trying to find that context. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you go about doing it? Well, you know, I mean, it's you you apply yourself completely and use all of your resources in terms of whether it's experts. I mean, I definitely rely on the advice of experts in terms mm-hmm. of like, think I know things that I don't, you know, I am always happy to find some, to work with somebody who is more expert in whatever it is that I am. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, you, you hope that you gather enough of it that you provide your director with enough information and inspiration and context that they can just sort of respond to one thing or or another and say, okay, I know, I love this. I know where I want to use it, or I love this. Where can we use this? Mm -hmm. And some of that has been where we found songs that, you know, we just love and just wait until we have that proper moment to utilize it. Like, you know, the song at the end of Fantastic Mr. Fox, Let Her Dance by Bobby Fuller, we had that for 10 years that we mm-hmm. were waiting to find a place for it. I guess that's the virtue of having this, this like, like shorthand with, with well, the directors. I, yeah. Or with. just having this ongoing, you know, having this ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of, I would say to having this longhand in a way yeah. with, with, with director, but it, it really comes down to, it really comes down to their vision and genius and capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like to sort through all, you know, when we were doing Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, there have been movies where, where Wes has had a very clear idea about what he wanted to try to do. Right. Musically. Um, and some of it to the point, say, with Rushmore, was very song-specific from the beginning. Which was this, which was this British invasion right. in the 60s. Right. And, yeah. so, and so, say, with Grand Budapest Hotel, n- neither Wes or I are experts in classical music. And mm-hmm. that is really where I, I that's where I, I, I fly most blind in that mm-hmm. world of classical music. So here we were in like this scenario that was set in Middle Europe, this sort of vague Middle Europe. And so I basically, 
went and gathered all of the regional classical music, all of the regional folk music. We were consulting with guys who own record stores in Hamburg to try mm -hmm, to find mm -hmm. certain classical pieces. You probably come across some amazing characters, right? And orchestras, yeah. And then it was sort of like, okay, and we were sort of going through it, and then, you know, uh, West landed, okay, like, I like, I love the sound of the Balilaika. Let's, mm -hmm. We're going to do, the score is going to be anchored in, we're going to make, we're going to put together a Bali Laika orchestra. What's the Bali Laika? Bali Laika is sort of this. Russian? Yeah. yeah. And, and, or what, what it was Slavic, right? Uh -huh. I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. Russian Slavic. And he just, and then he was fully committed to that, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, I'm bringing in Russian, I'm bringing into Paris, I'm bringing in Russian players. I'm marrying them to <laughs> the, 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 the French players that I can find. And yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's totally his own assemblage mm -hmm. that was sort of born out of all of this music that we had collected 95 and a half percent irrelevant to the movie, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we went through it all until we said, okay, it's going to be Bali Laika and then we're going to have a cymbalom, mm -hmm. you know? Um, Another instrument yeah, I do not know. Yeah, cymbalom is like a dulcimer. Uh -huh, it's yeah, like, right. so... So, you know, and that's, and, and again, it's crazy, but it's, it's also, it's, it's so original yeah. and it's also, it's so much fun, you I'm know, sure. it's so yeah. much fun to like be, you know, it's so much fun to be like tracking your Cymbalom player who's driving to Paris from <laughs> Amsterdam and can't find the studio, you know? See, like, that, that sounds like a West yeah. movie in and of itself, yeah. right? Yeah. Getting all these people yeah. together. So... So that's sort of how we do it, you yeah. know, and that's how, the, you know, the process is in, it, it's not routine, but it's, it's full on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's full on. It's fully committed to it. What about working in like to, to jump genres, right? right? I mean, what about working on like something like a comedy? Like, uh, like for instance, like the hang, like the hangover, the hangover. trilogy. So, yeah. So, t I mean, Todd Phillips is another, like, you know, he, uh, Todd Phillips I've worked on is Todd Phillips. I think I'm working right now with him on a movie called the Joker. Uh -huh. And I think this is the ninth movie that we've done together. Cool. Yeah. Um, and Todd is, his films have been much sort of more commercial in, in a sense. Um, especially when you're doing sequels and things like that. Right. But he has a, you know, he has a brutal sense of humor. He's mm -hmm. a really bright and brilliant filmmaker um, and and comedy is you know comedy is is the challenge with comedy is like you know your song the songs themselves don't necessarily have to be funny mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so that's where sort of you try to sort of land on context and counterpoint you know and then again those movies are generally more contemporary so you're you, you know you, you don't you have to sort of mind the the sort of novelty music you know you don't you don't want to be too jokey mm -hmm. well it's it's funny because one of the things i thought was kind of interesting about the pro like the profile musically for the hangover is that all the songs are sort of iconic in mm -hmm. a certain way you know they're mm -hmm. like instantly recognizable right and i find that it's probably very hard to use that kind of music in yeah. in films you know yeah, I mean, again, I mean, but, you know, I, I think that part of that is just sort of like with, especially with those three characters in, in the Hangover movies, is just they sort of, be, you know, it's interesting is that they, they, they when Todd first made, when we made the Hangover, 
Those are three really relatively unknown actors. Yeah, isn't that funny? And now yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and so in a way, they, they became icons, and it may be that the iconic music kind of helped you know, lay the groundwork in some way for that. Take me through the the Mike Tyson Phil Collins scene. <laughs> you know what? Again, I, I think I was going to tell you before. It's like it's sometimes it's so hard for me to remember exactly how it all went. I mean, yeah. I think then it was just sort of like, I think it was like one of those things where Todd calls up and said, "Do you think this would be funny?" You know, I, I mean, I think that's sort of like, I think that's sort of sometimes what the role that I, I can play in those movies is like. You get you get the you get the early you get the early word of and the question being like, is that okay? Or is mm-hmm. that good? Or is yeah. that funny? Or is that cheesy? Or is that... And so hopefully you can have a, cl- a clean palate to be able to sort of give them the support to keep the momentum towards it going. Well, it's funny because like how many things have to go right for that for that scene to work? You know, I mean, yeah. you have to get you have to get Mike Tyson, right. who I don't know what his involvement yeah. was at what point. Yeah. You have to get Phil. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and it's funny because that brings, I mean, that comes into the whole licensing part of your work, yeah. which, yeah. you know, I imagine. I mean, the thing I, that somehow I remember is like somehow being at the airport and like on the phone with the record label, like convincing them just or trying to give them some context of and, and why it was, it was a good decision to stand by us and support yeah. us. Um, you know, and obviously now with Todd is that it's, it's easier because people understand that like, okay, he, he, he really makes very compelling movies and mm-hmm. also that he's really good with music i i want to ask about doing working on boyhood mm-hmm. with uh with richard linklater mm-hmm. because it's such i can imagine just the way that that was conceived well, in the process. I, you know i would say with with rick who i've, I've worked with now for, a, for over a long period of time and you know i guess most notable in a sense most notably before boyhood maybe most notably for school of rock which was really a fun movie to work on, which maybe I think is probably the most popular movie that, mm-hmm. that, that I've ever worked on in terms of like, that's the one that, that has the kids coming up to me at the bar mitzvahs, you yeah. know, is, is school of rock. Is there a television series now too? Uh, there, well, there's the Broadway show. Oh wow. That's yeah. Yeah. Were you involved um, with that at all? No, <laughs> no. I mean, it's funny. It's, I think it's just ending and it was super successful. I can imagine. Yeah. But I, like when they told me that, like, or when I heard that like Andrew Lloyd Webber was involved, I was sort of like, okay, I, I guess, you know, I, that didn't really seem to me to be sort of the natural evolution of the, of the story or of, the, of, a, of the school of rock yeah. franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with boyhood, really, it's like, I think that that really my role really in boyhood as, was as much as anything was sort of an enabler in the sense mm-hmm. that like, okay, we have all this music and maybe there were a couple places where, you know, I had a little bit more creative input, but Rick had it kind of all plotted in his mind. And really like my job there primarily was like, okay, how do I get all of this? And what, what was he looking for? Like, what, what was the, well, I mean, the first the, pitch? The, I think, I think really, I mean, in terms of what the, you know, what the music was doing was like he, through the, through the, some of the song selection, he was showing the passing of time. Yeah. 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 You know? And so, and then, and with that, again, it was so personal. Uh-huh. I thought it was really interesting about the process of making that movie. And, and what's interesting about Rick, again, mm-hmm. another person from Houston is that. You work with a lot of text yeah, pads, huh? Yeah. So what, with Rick is that Rick was an athlete mm-hmm. and he's also he's a person you can talk about sports with right yeah. like really on it really with it I love as much as, as, as much as as much as I will tell you that he knows as much about movies uh-huh. as anybody yeah he is a self-taught and he knows all about all about Russian movies and Czech movies and whatever it is that you would want to talk about 
but he's an athlete. And so when he imagined this character, right, as he started shooting, he thought this kid was going to be like, an, you know, his notion of it, like there was, there was going to be a sports part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the, as it went on, his, the, the character, the kid's true character, he was not that kid. Yeah. And so he, it changed, mm-hmm. you know, he had a notion of what this character was going to, how this character was going to evolve and it didn't go along, along those lines. Um, so, I mean, that was really, for me, that was, it was more like that, that, that was a job really where I just had to, you know, protect him and get him what, everything he wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's such a funny personality type, like cinephile baseball player. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if this means anything to you, but like I would, the thing that I tease him about the most is that when he was in high school, he hit a ground rule double off of Roger Clemens. Did he actually? Yeah. Yeah. And so I would say whatever award he wins in, in, in you know, whatever <laughs> film awards he wins, he goes, but they don't know the real achievement, right? Wait, did, you did, hit a round, ground rule double off of Roger Clemens. Did Roger Clemens, like, go in high school? Yeah. In, in Texas? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Hi, how was yeah. that interview? Shut, shutting the place down. Every night I shut the place down. <laughs> Every night I shut the place down. Are you the Are you the last person to leave? Typically, every night, <laughs> every night man. But uh, have you ever had like you've all kind of always been your own boss? I've right? never had the last job I had was I was a bank teller in like the summer of like 1980. You were a bank teller. I was a bank teller while I was in college. I just, I well actually it was in what, Providence. No, in New York. So I had so my father got me a job the summer of night this was 1981 summer of 1980 my father got me a job as a corporate intern at mm-hmm. chemical bank i just hated it what did he do what did your father my father's a made ladies bathing suits oh, cool cool uh but he got me he met somebody like he actually he met somebody who would like was a was a big uh executive at at chemical bank who like worked at who went to brown mm-hmm. and somehow he, they started talking and he said well have him come to work this summer in the corporate intern so whatever so i went and it was just like not for me it wasn't happening nothing it was just like completely boring there was mm-hmm. nothing to do really or i didn't know what to do or i wasn't really interested in doing anything really mm-hmm. I, I couldn't take it and so then the next summer i just i, I like downgraded myself and i went and i became a bank teller for the mm-hmm. summer mm-hmm. and i worked in the bank chemical bank at Penn, Penn Station, mm-hmm. right? Which if Penn Station is gnarly now. Penn Station back then was, <laughs> was really totally crazy. But, I, but it was it was interesting. It was like it was like you'd really see the math, the real like you you you'd see masses. the human dimension. Yeah, sure. And and like Funny I would, place to and, go my, and my father would like shake his head at me when I would come. The fact that I like sort of downgraded myself, yeah. and then and that was really I would say that was the last. What I think is the, was the last job I ever had. Was your dad like into music? Uh, they... He was. My, my dad was sort of a Rat Pack kind of character. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah, they were into music. I mean, they weren't into any, you know, in any kind of professional sense or anything. But they, you know, they were of that generation. They used to go out to nightclubs. And... Mm-hmm. Do you DJ at parties? Uh, I did DJ at parties. Yeah. Occasionally, I get I get looped into it. Mm-hmm. What but, was the uh, crowd pleaser? What's your? You're in a you're in a crowded room. Like uh, moments moments yours. What do you play? Uh, maybe Mama's Pearl by the Jackson Five, <laughs> or uh, I don't know, uh, Getting Mighty Crowded by Van McCoy. But um, but what's crazy is in terms of like, especially having children, yeah. is that my father. I saw the French Connection when I was ten mm-hmm. in 1972. 
you know, we went and saw, it was like a great double bill. We saw, uh, I remember seeing The Godfather, and then we rushed out and went to see The Heartbreak Kid. But, you know, the fact, like, being exposed to sort of all these adult kind of movies. A double bill with The Godfather. That's well, like it, a, it wasn't a double bill. It was more like, it was like going from the like going from one theater to another. Yeah. It That's wasn't a, big a it wasn't a double bill. It was first like time you saw the Godfather. From, yeah. Godfather. <laughs> yeah I, but but the thing about it is like having gone to see those movies in their first run, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'm surprised you didn't see it and then re- and then have to go sit by yourself for 5 hours. No, and- <laughs> I, I mean it was it was um it was I was into it. My my parents were like I guess you know it, the fact that they took me at that age and didn't really have any issue with it. Yeah. I was lucky. Yeah. I mean, that's really, I would say, if anything, if there's an overall thematic, really, at least to this point now before lightning strikes me, is yeah. that I've been lucky, you know, in the sense that I got to, I sort of followed my heart and followed my passions and was lucky enough to connect with people who kind of wanted to keep me, you know, have me along for the ride, you know, and, 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 and that's really been how I've kind of maintained this career, you know, in the sense that. You know, when I've discovered or found genius, I've held on, you know, and, and, and that's really been how it all happened. I mean, I think if I tell people, you know, people, a lot of times people come for sort of like a prescription of like, I, you know, I want to do what you do. You know, mm-hmm. I, that, I'm, I love music. And if I sort of would sort of tell them how the, you know, how it plotted, I don't know how you would say, okay, okay, I'm going to follow that path. Yeah, you know, but- some of it was just so just so kiss it was just some of it was just kismet you mm-hmm. know in terms of meeting somebody at the right time and and sort of being in the right time maybe you know when i talking to you about sort of how this all evolved you know being you know really being of the age that i am and getting exposed to certain of these movies at a very early age and having access to movies and being able to be consumed by movies and records and not having necessarily all the digital distraction that mm-hmm. that kids have now and being able to settle into a book and being able to settle into a movie you know that that's really i think been a key to, a key to it um you know reading i would say has been if any, if there, as much as I love music and mm-hmm. know about music and bring that into filmmaking, I would say that st- reading and storytelling and a sense of story, that really has been my greatest asset at work. Mm-hmm. Like as much as I know about music or I know where the, where, the, where the songs are buried or whatever else it is, really I think what makes me better at what I do or maybe distinguishes some of the work that I do is just my appreciation of stories and characters that I got really from reading. Randall Poster, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much to Randall Poster, as well as his entire team at Search Party Music. Before we go, I'd also like to mention two new shows that are up now in New York. Matthew Lifehite's Fire Island Night is up at Delhi Gallery through December 2nd, and Liz Nielsen's Hotspots will be at Danzer Gallery Uptown until December 7th. If you'd like to hear more about their work, you can revisit our conversations on episodes three and seven of Image Culture. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. Remember to check out my portrait of Randall Poster at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture or on Instagram at williamjesslaird or at imageculture. If you enjoy this show, it helps a lot if you leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thanks so much for listening.